Welcome to the latest episode of the SEPAD podcast. And today I'm, I'm really excited to talk to someone who I've been, uh, I've been reading their work for, for a long time now, someone who had a really big influence on my, my intellectual journey right from the start of my PhD to the present day. So uh, when I had the chance to do this, uh, this guest's name was, was pretty high up on the list. So I'm really pleased that Fred Wary from the Carnegie Endowment for, uh, for International Peace is joining us on the podcast here today. So Fred, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simon. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really great having you on to talk about a range of different topics. And, and your research interests are incredibly broad and incredibly timely. You seem to be uh, riding the crest of numerous different waves, and it, it's quite the knack that you've got there. But... Uh, <laughs> I guess that's a compliment, yeah. Oh, it certainly is, yeah. Um, you were looking in detail at the Saudi-Iranian rivalry, then you were uh, moving into Bahrain and Libya, and now with your latest project, you seem to be identifying the, the areas that are most prescient and most of interest at particular times. But before we go into that, Fred, I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this particular field, this particular area of, of Middle East politics and sectarianism, ideology, identity politics. What was it that, that prompted this interest? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd always been involved in the Middle East ever since uh, college. And then my military career, um, you know, took me to Iraq uh, in 2003. And I think that was a very um, on-the-ground education in just how badly the United States uh misinterpreted identity politics in this very complex country. And so I sort of saw firsthand, you know, sectarianism um, unfolding and sort of the Americans' uh, misappreciation of that. Um, then I joined a think tank, the RAND Corporation, and this was um, in the mid-2000s when, if you recall, the sort of escalation of regional sectarianism. You know, sectarianism was all the rage. Um, you had the Iraq War, the Saudi-Iranian rivalry. And so I made a number of trips uh, to the Gulf um, for, for sort of other reasons. Right. And of course, sectarianism was front and center. You heard it, of course, in Bahrain. I was in the eastern province in Saudi Arabia. So I gathered this material on sort of Shia activism and Shia identity. And then when I started my, my doctorate, I, I just really wanted to unpack this phenomena, you know, in greater detail. And, and sure. looking at the Gulf specifically and specifically these the three countries um, where it's most applicable, Kuwait, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia. And that resulted in my, in my first book, Sectarianism, uh, in the, uh, Sectarian Politics in the Gulf. Right. Well, that's a fascinating read. And it's interesting to hear you say that it was perhaps Iraq that, that launched you into it. Can I ask, what was it in, in college that, that you were interested in? You mentioned that you were, you were involved in it in college. Well, in college, I, I, I sort of came of age in college. I started college with the collapse of the, of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. And so the Middle East was suddenly sort of front and center. And I just happened to take a course in Middle East history that sort right. of ignited this interest. And then there was an opportunity to study abroad at Cairo University and also um, in Israel and Palestine. And that just sort of set me off on this uh, track. And it was fortuitous that my military career sort of kept me going on the Middle East um, as well. Sure. Okay. Th that's interesting that 
that you spent time in Cairo and you you've done stuff on Israel Palestine, but it's it's the Gulf that has really got you or got the the early part of your career. What was it about there? Do you think that that really got you hooked on it and fascinated in it? Well, I mean, I think it was the the sort of veneer of sort of the stereotypes of these oil monarchies and you know the usual topics of of you know sort of security and, uh, you know, American policy. But then I did some very interesting, you know, field work in, in Shia villages in Bahrain, and I went out to the eastern uh, province, and just the complexity of, of identity and how, you know, regime policies were shaping identity. Um, I, I just found it utterly fascinating. And even in a small place like uh, Kuwait, I mean, of course, there are scholars that know Kuwait much better than I do, but the, the absolute complexity in such a small place. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, that just sort of, you know, set me off on this with the with the first book. Sure. Well, I, yeah, I, I can certainly see how that would pique your interest. So at that time, were there particular scholars that you were reading that you thought were either really prescient and, and on the money with it, or you thought got it really quite wrong that that drove you further to, to explore things? Well, again, I mean, the field of sort of sectarianism really has taken off, um, you know, recently and, and, I mean, made incredible advances. But, of course, there were, I mean, there were phenomenal um, scholars working on, on Gulf society and politics at the same time or people I was reading. Um, I mean, Greg, Greg Gauze, um, you know, a lot of his work on sort of um, Gulf foreign policy, the intersection between Gulf domestic policies and threat perception, I think was, you know, and how Gulf domestic politics impacts foreign policy was was utterly fascinating. Um, Toby Matiasen, Justin Gangler, Michael Erb are, are in Kuwait. I mean, these are all scholars that I hold in, in, high, in very high regard. Sure, that you've just named the the luminaries, I think, of our field. Some wonderful names, and uh, I'm I'm certainly hoping to talk to a couple of them. Toby is is involved in the project, so it's 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 a really quality list, a top quality list that you've named there. And I think that your work on sectarianism was was right at the vanguard of it. And I I'm curious to to before we move into sectarianism, I'm curious a little bit about your views on on Saudi Arabia and Iran then. So you were you were writing post time in Iraq and and you were curious and you were driven by a desire to explore this rivalry in a bit more detail. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I actually want to add one more person who is just was so influential in, in encouraging that and it does relate to Saudi Iran and that's Toby Toby Craig Jones. I mean, he was one of the first ones that did, you know, really amazing work on on Saudi Shia and, and oh, of course. Of course. as well. And and you know, and especially on the Saudi Iran, you know, rivalry because, you know, at the time I remember being at the Rand Corporation and and Rand of course has this this Cold War legacy, and we did a project at the Rand Corporation on the Saudi-Iran rivalry, and we were struggling with sort of the the prism to view this. Is it really a Cold War? You know, yes. is it, does it approximate the U.S.-Russian um, rivalry? And and you know, the other question that, of course, you're tackling is the notion of of proxies. And this this is something that really got to me during my time in Iraq. You know, how much control does Iran really have over its proxies, and what's the nature of the relationship between local actors and then these so-called uh, patrons, I mean, the, the, the Saudis and the Iranians. And is this really, 
being orchestrated. Because again, going back to sort of simplistic policy frameworks, um, you know, the notion that Saudi Iran, Saudi and Iran are these puppet masters controlling their proxies throughout the region. I mean, that was something I really wanted to, um, you know, to subvert and sort of, you know, challenge and, and to give more agency to local actors to show the way identity is instrumentalized by um, these states. Sure. And, you know, so all these issues, I think, are, are utterly fascinating. And of course, they they form the basis for your project as well. Yeah, th- there are certainly a number of similarities, and I, I must credit you for for pushing us in in that type of direction because it was it was that Rand report that that you refer to that was really the the bedrock of the the formative stages of my PhD thesis. So it oh, was okay. it was really interesting to uh, to to go back and revisit that. And I wonder, how do you think that things have changed then with that with that rivalry between these two major states and these two powerful states and the complex web of, of networks and interactions that they have? How do you think the, the rivalry has evolved in the, in the past decade? In the past decade? Well, um, again, I mean, I think the in the mid-2000s, you sort of had this you know, simplistic notion of a Sunni block of states. And of course, then you had, I mean, that was the, the Ahmadinejad era where you had a real stridency to to Iranian politics that, you know, I think stoked a lot of fear. Yes, in, you know, I part agree. of it was just the, the, the tenor of, of Iranian uh, politics. Um, you know, you've had... Um, yeah, I you know I think now the complexities of of the so-called Sunni bloc have have risen to the fore, and you have you know even greater rivalries within you know the Saudi Arab side. Um, the Iraq, the fiercest you know sort of battle for Iraq has sort of subsided. I mean, I think the Saudis have, have sort of thrown in the towel, so that's one you know arena that's sort of off the table. But I mean, it's I think it's still playing out. Of course, Yemen has has opened up um, recently and this was this was not something we tackled when we did the Rand report of course but so there are new near new theaters of, of contestation um, I think the social media revolution um, has created this sort of new echo chamber of you know of sectarianism that's feeding the rivalry as well so these were all things that have evolved since we did, did the Rand study. Sure, and it's interesting you hear the you you refer to the idea of a new echo chamber. I mean, that that phrase, the echo chamber, takes me back to the work of of someone like Paul Noble, who talked about the the regional echo chamber, and obviously that was um, that was sort of evoking the the pan Arab sentiment. But but I, yeah. I think it it's interesting that you have this sort of this sectarian dimension within the context of a, of a regional echo chamber that is often playing out on Twitter, as you say, rather than uh, purely politically or geopolitically, it's sort of online, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, in, in this latest um, volume that I did through the Luce Foundation, this, this uh, Beyond Sunni and Shia book, it's an edited volume. I commissioned an excellent chapter by Alexander Siegel, who, who talks about Twitter wars. And so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, work to be done on the effects of this and, and, you know, the, the toxic nature of this, of this new medium, it's, it's giving uh, new space to sectarian entrepreneurs. It's elevating the most 
strident voices. Um, you know, so I think the effects of this are quite, uh, quite profound. I, I would certainly agree. And it's interesting to hear you talking about the new spaces of, of competition with, with Yemen and, um, and obviously things have, have changed. Spatial dynamics have changed since, since you wrote that report and since I wrote my, my um, book. Things have, have evolved dramatically. My book came out just as the uprisings were, um, were really taking hold across the region. So things have dramatically changed. And obviously you've gone on to, to do some stuff on, on Libya now, but I wonder if, if you think there are parallels with what happened across, the, across the, the Gulf and the Levant that gave Saudi and Iran scope to exert more influence and what you see happening in Libya. Well, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, I think the, um, the Arab uprisings, uh, I mean, that's a huge, you know, sort of seismic shift. And I think it, it jolted the Saudi-Iranian rivalry. And indeed, I wrote an article for Current History saying that, you know, this was, a, this was another shock to the rivalry and it created, yeah, sort of new spaces of contestation. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the um, Arab uprisings sort of prompted a new assertiveness in Gulf foreign policy. And, and we saw this from Qatar and the UAE. Um, I mean, first in Libya, then in, of course, uh, Yemen. So the extent to which it, it mobilized, you know, Gulf Arab yeah. actors to take more assertive foreign policy stance, um, I think it did have a profound impact on the rivalry. And of course, we saw that in in Syria. Um, sure. So, yeah, I mean, Libya, I think Libya is blessed that there's no Iranian, you know, presence there. And, and so, again, the of course, the rivalry doesn't doesn't hold true there. But the the framework of proxy intervention, I mean, it's still very present in Libya and it's it's having a, a very malignant uh, impact um, there. The proxy rivalry is basically UAE, Egypt uh, on one side, Qatar, Turkey on the other. Of course. And I think what what's interesting from from that and from Syria, Yemen and and to a lesser extent, I guess, Iraq in the in the 2000s is this idea of, of fragmentation and state failure. Yeah, this is I mean, again, the the collapse of states, the the activation of these substate uh, identities um, as sort of a, a means of protection by local actors, but at the same time, concurrently, the injection of, of money, arms, and support from outside patrons. I think it all it all combines to give us this this inflammation of sectarianism. And you know, I mean, the question I am always asking is, you know, who who's more sectarian? Is it the is it the sponsors or the or the proxies? And I think, you know, there's this sort of escalatory dynamic or upward spiral and um, I always wonder that, you know, can can the regime sponsors, the patrons, can they turn down the sectarianism if they were just to, or did they unleash something that is going to, yeah. you know, take take some time to put back in the bottle? Sure. I mean, it's a question that I, I keep asking myself and I keep being asked is how do we, how do we move beyond this? How do we, how do we um, put the, the genie back in the bottle, if you will? And, and can these regimes sort of tone down this sectarian rhetoric? Well, this is something I've, I've um, you know, talked about with uh, someone else who's going to be on your, your show is Fanar Haddad is, is you know, the, uh, the sort of different 
waves or periods of sectarianism. You know, in the past, if you look at the the rivalry during the 80s, you had government control over, you know, clerical discourse and yes. media. And so I think what's so alarming about this new era is that it's it, it, sectarianism has escaped the realm of, of government control. And so it's, you know, I often ask myself if there was a grand bargain between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and I think your report, you know, aims for that uh, appropriately, if there was some magical, you know, um, healing between these two powers, would would regional sectarianism go away? Uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't read your, your entire report. I don't know if you answer that, but I, I my sense is it would it would turn down the temperature, but it wouldn't you know it wouldn't make it go away uh, completely. Well, that's reassuring because that's pretty much what we say in the in the conclusions <laughs> to the report. <laughs> that uh, yeah, we think that it it would tone down tensions and it would soften a regional environment, but that isn't going to curtail the the actions of of all these sectarian entrepreneurs that you uh, that you flag up. And is that yeah. something that you see in, in Libya as well, then? Well, again, this is where, you know, Libyans always say, look, we're, we're at the mercy of these intervening powers. And if, if they would all just stop, you know, meddling, uh, I, I think it would, again, help. It would, it would incentivize, you know, more peace domestically. But, you know, there are deep divisions in Libya, of regardless of the proxy war and, and these militias have their own, you know, streams of funding. And, and, you know, the, the tragedy of this is, you know, seven, eight years after the revolution, these domestic identities have become, you know, quite, quite entrenched. And, and I think that's another thing that I was, you know, talking about with some other scholars of, of sectarianism is, you know, just the, the cumulative impact of, of year after year of, of war and state failure, what that's doing to, you know, um, self-identification among young people in the region. And so just the sectarianization that's happening at an individual level, um, I think we haven't fully, fully grappled with it. Yeah, I, I worry, to be honest, when we go down this, this rabbit hole, because a, a brief sort of reflection would, would evoke parallels with, with events in Northern Ireland, and a, a yeah. generational yeah. struggle there, and and that was that was obviously at its peak during the nineteen seventies, and it's it's begun to uh, to reduce. We've we've seen a, a decrease in sectarian tensions, but that has taken a very long time to achieve, and that's within a very small or a relatively small space in which that's all yeah. playing out compared to a much larger regional set of dynamics. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So, Fred, yeah. we're we're dealing with some very complex topics, some very complex issues, uh, concepts, and and in some ways, I think you've perhaps got the the most challenging role of all of us, working as you do for Carnegie. And um, how on earth do you go about trying to to boil down some of these these tricky concepts and issues in a digestible way that that policymakers and uh, and others can can digest what you've got to say in an appropriate manner. Right. Well, this this is the real challenge. Um, of course. You know, again, I think it it just goes to the importance of challenging a lot of the the lazy shorthand that that policymakers use to describe you know the region. And and in some sense, I'm I'm sympathetic to it because there these are you know, people with, you know, very limited um, or crowded bandwidth. I mean, they've got all these crises. And, you know, how do you 
how do you uh, comprehend the complexities of this region? And so they revert to sometimes these stereotypes of, and of course we've seen, uh, you know, actually President Obama used it, the ancient hatreds. Indeed. Pieces, that, you know, that these um, societies are, you know, fundamentally divided and the, you know, the rivalries stem back centuries. And no, I just think, um, you know, injecting just a bit of, of you know, um, accessible nuance and showing them that, look, it hasn't always been this way. There are, there are deeper roots to this tension. There are states that stand to gain from playing up sectarianism. There are, you know, there are, and, and that's a sort of optimism. It shows, look, we can, we can maybe do things to affect it um, without being too, too optimistic. But I think just injecting a bit more um, you know, nuance. And, you know, unfortunately, I think there are going to be people for ideological reasons that that want to see this as, especially on Iran, you know, they want to see Iran as this puppet master yes. that is, um, you know, inherently, um, you know, sectarian and, and, and sort of controlling these proxies. And, and it's a losing battle to sort of, you know, push back on that argument sometimes. Yeah, and that's that's an issue that we have here, but to a far lesser extent than I think is is in DC and and the US more broadly. I think yeah. the big challenge that we have though is is reducing this complexity in a in a digestible way, in a way that can be processed in in a very short amount of time. <laughs> yeah, that's always that's always the challenge, and. Um... Yeah, it's a skill. I mean, I think I think part of it's just the language you use. I think you understand this. You know, there are certain technical terms that we use in academia to describe this phenomena. But then, how do you how do you package that in sort of digestible um, terms? And and also the format. I mean, people don't read. Um, unfortunately, in, they don't read Oxford University book policy books, <laughs> but they do read you know short, yes. short sort of bulleted formats so. of less than two pages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As a cynical view, of course, there are there are many wonderful policymakers and and individuals involved who will read endlessly, and I'm sure you've met a, a great many of them. So we shouldn't Absolutely. let my cynicism pollute this this conversation. But Fred, we're rapidly running out of time, so all that remains to be said is thank you so much for coming on. It's been fascinating to talk to you, and uh, I look forward to to reading your your forthcoming book. And those of you that haven't read uh, Burning Shores yet, please do. It's it's a cracking read, along with with pretty much everything else that you've done. So thank you so much, Fred. It's it's been fascinating. Thank you, Simon. It's been a pleasure, and good luck with your project. Thank, thank you. you.